Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word as we continue forward in the book of Acts, still in Acts 15. Today, uh, the title of the sermon is The Jerusalem Council Judges. The regional church settles the matter. I'll be reading from verse 1 of chapter 15 through to verse 35. Our verses of focus will be verses 6 through 21. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter arose up and said to them, Men and brethren, You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles, who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preached him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas who was also named Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, 
It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So brothers and sisters, this text should give all Christians great cause to rejoice. We'll be rejoicing in seeing the Lord God at work with His church. We'll be rejoicing to see the orderly process by which the church of the living God answers these questions, the pillar and ground of truth at work in the earth. We'll rejoice to be members of a church uh, inside a system like this that can work to this glorious outcome as we listen to the Holy Spirit together. We're going to rejoice again in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ today, the grace of God presented to us in today's text. We're going to rejoice in wisdom. We're going to see wise men demonstrating to us how to go through decision-making processes. We're going to rejoice in wisdom. And we're going to rejoice in the defeat of the demonic realm today as well. The victory of God's kingdom over all the forces of darkness. We're going to rejoice in understanding this text better, hopefully, because I'll bet you've read this text before and go, I wonder what that means. And we're going to get to that today. And I think we have an answer uh, to those questions. Now, I do want to remind us that divisions must occur. Divisions must occur. We've got a division here going on. We talked before about how the Lord uses division in His church to grow His church up. He's not surprised by this, nor should we be. In fact, Paul said, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first, first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. And he's writing to the Corinthians. This is l- later, but it still applies. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So we should expect divisions to occur from time to time in God's church. We even read about tares amongst the wheat today, didn't we? And we read before about wolves in sheep's clothing as well. So we've gone through two of the sermons for Acts 15, looking at the, how a wise local church deals with heresy, the way that the church in Antioch got this ball moving. Then we looked at Galatians last week, actually having the joy to listen to the entire epistle of Galatians all at once together last week, knowing that Paul wrote that epistle to these churches in southern Galatia before going or along the way to Jerusalem as a result of this controversy, really helping inform our understanding of what's going on in this controversy. 
And today we'll look at the regional church settling the matter. And the next week we'll learn about communication, how they communicate clearly. And we'll look at that and it's, it's worth its own sermon. So first today we'll have a little recap of verses 1 through 5. We'll see how the apostles and elders called for the council. We'll see that much dispute takes place. We'll see Peter opposing the require, requiring the Gentiles to keep the ceremonial law. So we'll look at what he has to say there. And then we'll see Barnabas and Paul tell of God's work amongst the Gentiles. We'll see that evidence brought forth during this convocation. And then we'll see James at the end coming to the conclusion and sharing his judgment on the matter with everyone. And then we'll look a little bit more deeply, especially into the Old Testament, to understand the judgments clarification. James gives a clarification on the judgment with those four issues, those four prohibitions that are laid out there. And then we'll seek to uh, look at how these principles can apply to our own lives, uh, that we may know and love and obey the Lord more and have Christ formed in us more as a result of the preaching of the word today. Again, this has been addressed in the past. This is something that they've been dealing with for a time. Recall Peter's vision to kill and eat the unclean animals. And this was a divine revelation given to him. Then he had a debate with Judean brothers already about this some years earlier. Looks like it should have been solved by then. And even it looked as though it was settled in Peter's mind because he was eating with the Gentiles before the men came from James. And then Paul and Barnabas, as we see, come to this point where they're having this conflict in Antioch that leads to this situation. So some Judean men had come from James, we know that from Galatians, and they had taught a false gospel. And here's the false gospel. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was the false gospel that they were bringing. So Paul and Barnabas immediately and publicly opposed their teaching, but no resolution was achieved. So this begins to present before our eyes the orderly process of things that the Holy Spirit carries out when his church is responding to conflict, especially of this level that threatens the gospel itself. The first step in the church response is this public dispute that involved mutual questioning. That word dispute there is a back and forth, an exchange. It gets to courtesy. It gets to a rational conversation, listening to one another and really understanding one another. Listening to one, of the, one another's arguments, asking questions for clarification, courteous debate, and this was done there in front of the church. That's often the first step, is this publicly clarifying the debate and bringing it out before the eyes of everyone. And it's very important to understand the question that's being debated here. Uh, Going back, the law of God contains both eternal moral law, which predates Sinai, and transient ceremonial law, or restorative law, that's given at Sinai. Now, this ceremonial law is best called restorative law because the vast majority of it deals with God demonstrating to fallen people that they can be forgiven of their sins. And and what that looks like in that system is called the ceremonial law. But in addition, there's also some ceremonial laws that are kind of in the the purity category in terms of not eating certain foods and uh, the rules regarding uh, being with Gentiles. Now, the Judaizers, and that's an easy name for them. I haven't defined them yet, but let's just call them those who are arguing this false position, okay? And it just helps to say it more quickly. Okay, the Judaizers are those who believe it is necessary for all Christians, Jews and Gentiles, to keep the ceremonial law for forgiveness of sins and or for ongoing sanctification. 
So that's what the debate is. If you don't understand what the question is that's being asked, then the conclusion won't make sense. This is not a debate about the abiding validity of the moral law of God. If you don't understand that on the front end, you might take the conclusions of the council to mean that the law of God, the moral law of God, has been abrogated. What this is, is a debate about the abiding application of the ceremonial laws given to Moses at Sinai. So that's important. We've got that clear before our eyes about what they're debating. So when this comes up, the church at Antioch takes the process a little bit further, and they decide to send Paul and Barnabas and some other men to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders. They know to whom they must appeal to seek an answer to this question. So the next step in the church response is for this Antioch church, they appoint orderly appointment, and they send a delegation to Jerusalem with a very clear mission, specifically to find the apostles and the elders, the church in Jerusalem, and to ask them to judge on this exact question. There's another part of the process that we see the church of the living God holding before our eyes. Now on the way, they're able to encourage the brethren in Phoenicia and Samaria about God's work amongst the Gentiles. They're telling everyone about this. And when they arrive in Jerusalem, the church received them. It's the next part of the process. And they were able to report to them all that God had done with them amongst the Gentiles. So I want us to see this unfolding and orderly process of how the church of the living God responds to these things. And I want you to know that you're a part of that and to be encouraged and to rejoice in being a part of the church. The next step we see here is that the Jerusalem church receives the Antioch delegation. They don't have to, but they do receive the delegation and they let them tell the whole story to the church. This is more of an informal gathering initially as they're coming together. This is not the convened council initially, but they've heard, they've all heard what's going on. Now there's some Pharisees there who are believers but they're of the sect of the Pharisees. And instead of rejoicing about God's gracious work amongst the Gentiles, what's their response? They rise up and say, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So you can tell they may have backed off a little bit from the initial severe heresy, which says you cannot even be saved unless you're circumcised and keep the law. Now they're, it's as if they're saying, well, okay, we hear about all this good stuff, but it's still necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. You know, that's part of the sanctification process. And these folks may just be more confused on sacramental transitions. They may just be more confused on sacramental transitions and not understand that baptism is replacing circumcision and that the Lord's Supper is replacing all the feasts that are associated there with the ceremonial law. So that, that may just be their only confusion there rather than actually some sort of deep works-based theology. But nevertheless, it's an important enough continued disagreement to have a convocation. The apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. This idea of coming together is a formal thing. They convened this council. So the next step in the church response is to call for a formal gathering of the Jerusalem church leaders so they can hear everything and decide together. This is the decision they made. The elders and the apostles together, the leaders of the Jerusalem church, were asked, will you take up this question? And they said yes, and they all came together. Commentary says, this is Calvin, 
let us know that here is prescribed by God a form and an order in assembling synods when there ariseth any controversy which cannot otherwise be decided. And isn't it comforting to see the church at work and to see the way that God has provided for these questions to be answered through the work of His church? It shows us that the church is to hold great dignity in the earth. And when rightly appointed leaders meet together to address these questions, it is very meaningful. Now, we're told about apostles and elders. It is worth noting here that this is representative leadership. This is not congregationalism. This is not pure democracy. The church is not a pure democracy. The church members were not seated in this assembly, but we know that the elders were chosen by the church members. So without church members, there are no elders. So the whole church, when you say the whole church, you're referencing the leaders and the church members. But this is representative leadership, not pure democracy. Also, note that the apostles appear to have no extra authority compared to the elders. That's important because when we, when we see that, this is not divine revelation at work during this council. This is a convened church council that shows us how we are to convene our church councils and why we are to convene church councils and what they're supposed to look like and what their jurisdiction is. There's a lot to learn here about church councils. Church synods is what they can be called. Commentary says, Nor did the apostles give their judgment concerning it without the elders, the inferior ministers, to whom they thus condescended and on whom they thus put an honor. Those that are most eminent in gifts and graces and are in the most exalted stations in the church, ought to show respect to their juniors and inferiors for mutual advice and encouragement, that they may know one another's mind and strengthen one another's hands and may act in concert. So here we see the wisdom of the apostles on display. Their awareness that they're functioning in this convocation, in this gathering, with not one bit more authority than the other members of this convocation. Greater influence, absolutely a greater stature because of seeing Christ and being his witnesses, sure, but not authority. What happens next? Well, it's easy to pass by this. Much dispute takes place. The text says, when there had been much dispute. Let's talk about this. This short clause describes a long conversation. It's a short clause telling us about a long conversation, okay? And again, this dispute is the same word that was in verse 2. This is a mutual questioning a disputation, a discussion. There's a clear question on the table. There's a clear debate happening. You can't help but wonder about Robert's rules of order maybe emerging out of these types of conversations through the years where good Christian people led by the Holy Spirit have a very real disagreement and they learn how to work through it together in a beautiful fashion. Now, no time frame is given other than much. It could have been hours. It could have been days. I guess it could have been weeks. It seems like everybody there had had enough time to hear what they needed to hear and to say what they wanted to say. So each member of this convened meeting, they had this important opportunity to hear everything that was presented, to ask their questions, to lay out their considerations. Rejoice in the wisdom of the process of the church. Rejoice in this in your family, in decision making, when everyone has an opportunity to be heard. It makes a huge difference 
at the end of that decision-making process. There is enough time here for all the men to fully dispute the matter. They don't just check the box and get everybody in a room. Everyone's going to be satisfied at the end of this. And in fact, we know they are. When we look at next week's text, we're going to see they were all satisfied. So everyone on this side had come to the side of what the letter states by the time it was sent. Look at God's work here. It's a beautiful thing. They're all satisfied that they've been heard and that they've all heard everything that is germane to the conversation and to the decision. This takes time. This takes patience. We rejoice in God granting this to them. The commentary says, there had been much disputing pro and con upon this question and liberty of speech allowed as ought to be in such cases. Those of the sect of the Pharisees were some of them present and allowed to say what they could in defense of those of their opinion at Antioch, which probably was answered by some of the elders. Such questions ought to be fairly disputed before they are decided. So it's really beautiful to see godly, wise men coming together in this council and having the patience and the care to understand the question and to go through it carefully with every man given an opportunity to hear and to participate. So all that has happened. A lot of ground has already been covered. They've probably opened to Leviticus 17 and 18 at this point in time. That's speculation. But when we see where James goes in his, in his conclusion, it's not groundless speculation. They've had a lot of conversation. They've talked a lot about the distinctions probably between the moral law of God and the ceremonial law of God. They've probably had sacramental discussions about baptism replacing circumcision. We don't know for sure, but they've disputed a lot on these questions. It's done. All of them have had a chance to say their words, to hear what's been said, and Peter... Rises up. Now, we don't know for sure that Peter hadn't spoken before this. Maybe he had said a few things here and there. But Peter saves his evidence and his conclusions until the end. Listen to what he says. Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So Peter gives them the facts for them to consider. He gave the word... God, here's his first fact, God gave the word of the gospel to the Gentiles by Peter's mouth. So he's speaking from first-hand experience. Next, the Gentiles heard the word of the gospel and they believed. And next, most critically, God acknowledged the sincerity of their faith by giving them the Holy Spirit in this very visible way. And in fact, it was so visible and so obvious that he said it was in the same manner that, that the Jews had, the Jewish believers in the early, the first church, the first days of the church had received it at Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles by God in the same manner that God gave the Holy Spirit to the early church at Pentecost. This is evidence 
for the Jewish believers to see that God is not distinguishing between Jewish and Gentile believers. And that's his point. God did not make any distinction between Jewish and Gentile believers in terms of them receiving the Holy Spirit. And his conclusion from this, and this is where we rejoice in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that God purifies the hearts of believers by faith in Jesus Christ. Jewish and Gentile, then and now. And uh, we can recall what Peter saw. He saw um, in Samaria, he and John were there, they saw things happen there as well. And then also Peter uh, saw Cornelius. So he saw all these things take place and he's presenting it to them. Now he probably would have included some details of his vision in Acts 10. This vision that he saw that was clearly undoing that aspect of the ceremonial commands. And that's divine revelation to him. He probably shared that. And it may be that some of those of the Pharisees and others may not have necessarily heard it directly from Peter before. So that was very important for them to hear from Peter. This divine revelation with apostolic authority would have been very meaningful to those who had yet to hear of it from Peter before this. So he goes on and he gives an admonishment to the Judaizers. Since God has treated Jew and Gentile the same, it's unnecessary to put the yoke of bondage of these ceremonial laws upon them. And since the Jews were never able to fully comply with the ceremonial laws themselves, it's hypocritical to put this yoke of bondage of the ceremonial laws upon the Gentiles. And so his final conclusion is to insist upon the ceremonial laws for Gentiles, listen now, is to test God. Why do you test God? He asked them. Because Peter finally concludes, all believers are saved in the same manner. Only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ can any person be saved. And that is great joy for us, brothers and sisters, that we are saved because of God's grace and because of no other reason. I hope that you will rejoice once again that you are saved because of God's grace. And that He brings you into His kingdom because of His sovereign grace to you. I do want us to note, I think it's worth seeing here, and this applies also to Barnabas. Paul reports that Peter had initially been drawn away from, the, from gospel living and thinking by the Judaizers who'd come to Antioch, remember? So before they go from Antioch to Jerusalem, Peter had been pulled away. But now we see that Peter has returned to gospel thinking and preaching. Note the similarity between Paul's admonishment to him back in Antioch and this speech that we just heard him give. It seems like the Lord blessed Paul to have Peter listen to him. Here's what he said to him. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Sounds very familiar to what Peter said, doesn't it? It's beautiful to see the Lord bringing them back together. I do also want us to note that in this assembly, Peter's perspective would have been particularly influential. Think about the influence that he had. 
Think about his past tendency to run ahead. I'll never leave you, Lord. He's learned wisdom, and we want to learn the same wisdom. Instead of giving his view with clarity and strength, early on in the dispute, Peter waits. He waits and he listens to all the things that have been said. He humbles himself before all the assembled members of the council, listening to them all before he shares his facts and his conclusions. The wisest and most influential men often speak last and least. What happens next? Well, Barnabas and Paul tell of God's work amongst the Gentiles. That's the next set of evidence that the Holy Spirit brings forward. And we know it's the Holy Spirit because later, we're going to look at it next week, it says it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is overseeing all of this deliberation as the church comes together. The text says, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. It's a very similar bit of evidence, but from a different perspective. So what happens, though, is worth noting, is that the assembly kept silent as Barnabas and Paul go on and share God's work. This reference to silence, we shouldn't just pass by. We should consider this. It tells us that every man present feels no urgent pressing need to ask any more questions or make any more assertions at this point. The assembly is finding the mind of the Lord together. And I've seen this, I've watched this occur myself as well, that there's a lot more conversation early on, but as things go on, when men of God led by the Holy Spirit are seeking the Lord's mind, this, this exact process often plays itself out. Less and less talking as time goes on, and those moments of silence are great messages to us of what God is doing. Silence amongst the members of the assembly is an important part of the process that signals the need that that great need for mutual discussion and exchange is coming to a close because everyone has been able to talk and share their thoughts and their concerns. And this really reveals to us that attentive listening and patience is critical, is critical to sound deliberation. Next, please note that Barnabas and Paul both declared together before the council. It seems here that also Barnabas has rejected the Judaizer influence that had bound him for a while in Antioch. So this is a really beautiful kind of dual victory here in Paul's relationship with both Peter and Barnabas. So you see the, the personal aspect of God's work in these types of councils. And again... With Barnabas and Paul, note that the wisest and most influential men often speak last and speak least. And we can rejoice in this wisdom. And they're really relying upon the work of the Holy Spirit. They know that God has brought them together and is leading them and guiding them. So James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has certainly seen his share of wisdom in his days, and heard his share of wisdom in his days, speaks up. He's clearly the moderator of this group, and he speaks up. Silence persists. After they had become silent, James answered and saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. 
Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, just as it is written, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by name, by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Do references... He references the Old Testament text as his closing point. Prior to speaking, silence again holds the the room. It's got its hold on each mind. And James speaks into this. The brother of our Lord, he perceives. The long period of mutual discussion is now finished. With each man's mind likely satisfied at that point. With the thoroughness of the exchange and the proper judgment. We're going to see that they were all satisfied. That's what the text says as we, when we look at it next week. What facts does James cite before he gives his suggested judgment to the group? First, he cites Peter's evidence regarding God's work amongst the Gentiles. He says, here it is. And he cites Old Testament scriptures that agree with Peter. This is Amos 9, 11, and 12. Let's look at that text. First of all, this idea of the tabernacle of David from Amos 9. What's going on here? What is that about? Listen to the commentary. The covenant was made with David and his seed, but the house and family of David are here called his tabernacle. Because David in his beginning was a shepherd and dwelt in tents, and his house that had been as a stately palace had become a mean and despicable tabernacle, reduced in a manner to its small beginning. This tabernacle was ruined and fallen down. There had not been for many ages a king of the house of David. The scepter had departed from Judah. The royal family was sunk and buried in obscurity and as it should seem not inquired after. But God will return and will build it again. Raise it out of its ruins, a phoenix out of its ashes. And this was now lately fulfilled when our Lord Jesus was raised out of that family and the throne of his father David given to him with a promise that he should reign over the house of Jacob forever. And when the tabernacle of David was thus rebuilt in Christ, all the rest of it was, not many years after, wholly extirpated and cut off, as was also the nation of the Jews itself, and all the genealogies were lost. Matthew Henry concludes with this simplifying phrase, the church of Christ may be called the tabernacle of David. So the church has become the herald to the Gentiles who may hear and believe and be called and be, and be those who are called by my name. God has raised up his church to go forth and take the gospel to the world. Now, in addition, James points to God's knowledge. He wants to reassure the hearers. James says, known to God from eternity are all his works. You see, this is not a change to God's plan. This isn't God coming up with something because he's surprised and he has to make a new way. 
this transition was foreordained. It feels like a massive upheaval to these people, but it's nothing new for God. So he's helping to bring them in to who God is and what he is doing as they're dealing with this massive transition because their whole life was built around these ceremonial activities. So James gives his judgment in verse 19. And it's very simple. Here's the answer to your question. Right? That came from Antioch with a question. And this teaches us that when councils and synods deliberate, the answer needs to be simple. As simple as possible. Don't make it overly complex. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. And that troubling, we know, is in the context of the question that was asked. Do they have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses? And the answer is no. We will not trouble them with that. It will be terrible to trouble the Gentiles with the ceremonial law. They're turning to God. That tells us that they're turning away from sin and idolatry. And we know that when we saw the, all the false worship that took place there in Lystra when the, they tried to sacrifice animals to Paul and Barnabas when they, when they came through. We see their idolatrous approach to life and they're turning away from that and turning to God. Now, however, when you think about the long dispute, the long discussion they would have had, some important portions of the law might have inadvertently been set aside with this ruling. So James gives a clarification to make sure that these key areas of the law do not get set aside. What is the clarification? To abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Let's understand this together. This is not a repudiation. First of all, what it's not. This is not a repudiation of the moral law of God. Listen to Pastor Kaiser, Phil Kaiser, in his sermon from 2007 when he preached through Acts. This is not a repudiation of the moral law. But people respond, well, sexual immorality is a moral law. And it is the only moral law from the Old Testament that's being upheld. But the Greek word here, pornea, can refer to non-moral marriage laws, such as you can't marry your cousin or your nephew. If the law of sexual immorality is the only moral law that we have to keep, does it mean that we can murder, that we can lie, and that we can steal? Of course not. Romans 13.9 says that the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, that these are still binding. Paul's quoting the Old Testament, and he goes on and says, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The assembly, this council, the Jerusalem council, did not do away with the moral law. So what are these four prohibitions? These, this is a reference to the four prohibitions that are given in extensive detail in Leviticus 17 and 18. And unlike other Levitical law, these four prohibitions must be obeyed by both Jew and Gentile. And we'll see that in the text when we look at it which in one sense makes this section of the ceremonial law very similar to the non-ceremonial moral law that both Jew and Gentile were required to obey. The Gentile and Jewish believers are not required to keep anything more in regards to the ceremonial law than the four requirements of Leviticus 17 and 18. Kaiser says, All four laws are the only Jewish non-moral laws that were required of Gentiles 
in the Old Testament. Is that beginning to make sense? You see the logic of how this flows together and how you have to have each piece in its right place in order to get to this? Now, you'll notice that later, when we get to it next week, the letter, these things are given in a slightly different order. In the letter, it's abstaining from idols, blood, things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And that is the order that it's given in Leviticus 17. So the idea is that maybe James was speaking off the top of his head initially when he said what he said, but when they wrote the letter, they sat down and they said, look, we're going to get this right in the order of Leviticus 17 and 18. Now, I'm going to read some things here that you don't typically hear aloud, but I'm going to read all of Leviticus 17 and 18, okay? Abstain from things offered to idols. That's presented to us in Leviticus 17, verses 1 through 9, and it's going to cause to emerge this idea of destruction of demons and the dangers of this, these activities and their linkage to demon worship. <clears throat> Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Whatever man of the house of Israel who kills an ox or lamb or goat in the camp, or who kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, the guilt of bloodshed shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. <coughs> to the end... <coughs> that the children of Israel may bring their sacrifices which they offer in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting to the priest and offer them as peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and burn the fat for a sweet aroma to the Lord. They, and here, <clears throat> here's what it boils down to. This is why all these commandments were given about dead animals out in the field. They shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons after whom they have played the harlot. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Also, you shall say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel, and here it is, or of the strangers who dwell among you, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. So, this is an abiding law for Jew and Gentile Christians throughout the ages. Abstain from things offered to idols. Next, abstain from blood. This is from Leviticus 17, verses 10 through 12. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, did you hear that? Or of the strangers who, among, who dwell among you, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. <clears throat> so that's the second item in the list that all Jew and Gentile Christians, all Christians everywhere to our obey, abstain from eating blood for those reasons. Next, related to this, abstain from things strangled. This is verse 13 through 16 of Leviticus 17. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among them, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, 
He shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. So you can't strangle it and leave the blood inside. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any flesh. For the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beasts, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. So, is this, this is adding up, isn't it? We can see that this really makes sense. They're debating the ceremonial law. They say, no, you don't have to keep the ceremonial law. And then someone probably who really knows the Old Testament says, but wait a minute, what about that section in Leviticus 17 and 18? And they're like, yeah, you're right, that's for everybody. Now, the section on sexual immorality is given to us in Leviticus 18. And as you'll see, some of these things here are also moral laws that are given to us. But some of these details that are given to us might not have necessarily been considered lawless had we not had this abiding prohibition given to us. Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 30. You'll notice that verses 7 through 18 I've left out because I'm not going to list every single one of the consanguinity prohibitions. Okay, but they're there. And they abide. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you, shall not do. Nor, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does... He shall live by them. I am the Lord. And this is obviously being contrasted to the demons that they were worshiping. And in this section we'll even see Molech mentioned in, uh, as a part of this. And so this was a major part of what was going on in the world at that time. Open paganism. Open sacrifice of animals to false gods at that time. Going on. Verse 6. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. And then it goes on and lists all those prohibitions from verse 7 through 18. And so, based on this understanding, it's important for us to understand what this text says, of what these familial relationship limitations are in terms of marriage. Next. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So these things occur in a procession. This kind of ungodliness leads to a hatred of children and a, a lack of care for life. We see this in our world today, do we not? Next. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these the nations are defiled. And I am casting out before you. This is demonic worship activity. That's being discussed here. And it goes from bad to worse to worser. 
Do we see this in our world today? For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon, upon it, and the land vomits out its inha- inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. If the people are not wise enough and good enough to be made sick to their stomach, at least the land will vomit them out. Verse 28, Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. This is strong language meant to get our attention about the significance of these laws and the importance of these laws. And you can see why the wise elders and apostles of that council wanted to make sure that the pagans, coming out of paganism, understood they needed to have nothing to do with what was going on in the temple of Artemis or the temple of Hermes or the temple of Zeus. And they needed to get away from it completely. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore you shall keep my ordinance so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. So the Lord is so good to teach his people at that time what it looks like for a culture, for a nation to be infested with demonic worship, and what the practices are in a people who are doing that. And he teaches them, don't have anything to do with that, you or the strangers in your midst. So as the Gentiles are coming into the church, and Jewish believers are there with them, and they're trying to decide what to do about the ceremonial law, the first thing they get right is, no, the ceremonial law is unnecessary for the Gentiles, unnecessary for the Jewish believers. But let's don't forget these four important laws that God gave to us that are associated with demonic worship, cultural declension, and the final destruction of that culture because of that sin. He's good to give, them the, to give that to his people then and to his church early on. And I think we need to hear it again today and recall these things. So please note the centrality of demon worship in regard to these prohibitions and the subsequent judgment and destruction upon a people given over to such. I'm not making the claim that every aspect of this that's listed in in Leviticus 17 and 18 is connected with demon worship. I'm not saying that. But we can see that a sizable portion of this is. And we can see that all four of the aspects that are prohibited, each one of those can in some way be linked to demonic worship. So, what can we learn about this for today in our world and in our lives today? Well, I'm going to go back to the very beginning. And my first word to you is going to be rejoice. Rejoice. Give thanks to God, first of all, for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That God has saved us by His grace. He has chosen you because of His grace and His favor and for no other reason. And He unites you with Christ by the work of His Holy Spirit giving you faith. 
Faith to see your own sin. It's an experience. This is not an academic idea like we discussed in Christian Instruction Hour this morning. The faith that comes here as a result of God's grace in the life of the believer is not an academic concept. You bump into your own sin and you see that you are a sinner and that you indeed hate God. And then you are brought to despair. You're given faith to see you cannot change yourself. You cannot rescue yourself. And in that despair, God brings Christ before your eyes. And you are given faith to look to the cross and to trust in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. And he helps you see nothing else will do. And he helps you see that Christ's death on the cross is more than sufficient to make atonement for your sins and to bring you into friendship with God. Rejoice, brothers and sisters, once again, in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that has been brought to your souls by the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing, to rejoice. And you'll see it is this joy in this one message of salvation in our one Savior who died on that cross, this one message of salvation that grips them as they draw the church together to respond properly as a church to the attack upon this, this grand and glorious gospel that they've been given. The gospel is what this whole thing is about. And the church exists to proclaim and preach the gospel to the world and to demonstrate the love of Christ that comes through loving and living the gospel and to protect the gospel at all costs whenever these kinds of lies rise up. And we see that God in his kindness has given us in his word what a church council is to look like. Do you not grieve for those Christians that you know who say, oh, it's just me and my Bible out here in, in, my, in my sanctuary under the stars. I don't need to go to church. I'm not that kind of Christian. Don't you grieve for folks who are not experiencing the goodness and the glory and the dignity and the guiding strength of the church, which in the Word of God in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.15 is called the pillar and ground of truth. Individuals are not called by themselves to be the ones who discern heresy from non-heresy. Individuals are not the ones. Families are not the ones. The state is not the one. Any private business endeavor that might call itself Theological Controversies, Inc., there is no such thing. It is only the church of the living God that has the authority by the Word of God to discern these heresies in the earth. And it has happened over time. And we can look back and we can rejoice in the landmarks that have been driven into the earth when we look back over history. And there's more to come. I believe there's more grand dogmas that need to be established by the church because we are in the midst of great heresy still to this day. The heresy that Jesus Christ is not the current reigning King of Kings and that every king on the earth and every political ruler on the earth is not required to bow their knee to him and do their work in worship and honor to him is a great heresy. And it's the fruit of humanism. And the answer is the law of God applied to all of life without exception from Genesis to Revelation. That's an example 
of a future dogma that I believe will eventually be established by God through the work of his church as he unifies his church and brings us to solve these problems the way they're supposed to be solved as a unified church. So my heart swells with sadness, but also with hope as we consider what God will do. Where we are as a church now, but what God will do to bring his church together to be able to have a unified voice on these huge questions again in the future. Rejoice in the gospel, brothers and sisters. Rejoice in the church of the living God. Rejoice that your name is written on a church roll. Terry and I, we go through that church roll and we pray for every soul. You are on a church roll. And as a member of a church roll, you are being prayed for and brought into this glorious thing called the church that God has given in the earth with dignity and with power and with beauty in your life to help you and to help you be confident in the path that God calls you to walk as the church speaks into your life through the gospel. We see the wisdom. Rejoice in wisdom. Rejoice in wisdom. Grow in wisdom. Look to Peter. See how he behaved. Look to Paul and Barnabas. See how they behaved. Look to the church at Antioch. See how they behaved. Grow up in wisdom and rejoice in the wisdom that's given to us. Rejoice in process. Rejoice in process. It's one of the foundational aspects of of Christianity. Due process. Where do you think that concept comes from? You think it arose from the depths of hell? (laughs) You think it just sprung out of the heart of sinful man? No, no, no. It is from God to us as a gift via His Word. And the church reveals due process to us here. Rejoice in the good process. And you know what? That means you can go and you can look online and you can go to the Covenant Presbyterian Church website and you can look up their book of church order and you can go down and you can read through all the processes that are in place that guide the church through the process of discernment and judgment. Rejoice to be a church member that's a part of a church that God has put together and gathered this level of wisdom for us to benefit from over time. And, and do you not mourn, again, not just for the individual out there under the stars, but for the, the independent churches who have nowhere to go. They have nowhere to go. They don't have a process to go through. They don't have any help to look for outside of their own assembly. It's grievous. Now, they may have good process within their church, possibly, but they don't have a process outside of their church to even look to. Rejoice in wisdom. Rejoice in process. Rejoice in the church. Rejoice in the gospel. Rejoice that you're a member of God's church. Rejoice in demonic defeat. Rejoice in demonic defeat. And you know, it's funny, isn't it? The less blood the less sacrifice to demons, the less of this demonic activity I'm not even going to talk about that takes place, in some way it robs them of power. It robs them of influence. I don't know the connection. But this kind of activity, engaging with demons, empowers them. And as the church and the people of God go through history and say that is a demonic being 
that is going to be bound and crushed by the king of kings have nothing to do with it or its practices in the earth. We see the tide of evil turning throughout history. We do see that. Now, in our world today, we, we see that these types of activities, and I did some research, you don't want to know about all the things that are happening in our world today in these four categories. You don't want to hear about it. But it's all happening, and it's explicitly tied to magic or to Satanism or to demonic worship. It's happening, and it's on the rise in the Western world. Does that surprise you? Turn away from the Word of God. Turn away from the King of Kings. Turn away from worshiping Him and adoring Him and walking in His ways. We know, it's, we know it will happen. And for us, we just rejoice that Jesus is our King. Jesus is our Savior. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, rescuing us in Christ and bringing us into participation of life with God. And He protects us. And He gives us His Word. And He makes us His ambassadors. So, brothers and sisters, I hope that this section of Scripture where you see the Jerusalem Council judging and settling the matter will bring you great joy and rejoicing as you consider yourself as a member of God's church, believing His gospel and doing His will in today's world. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in Your Word. We rejoice, O God, in Your gospel to us and that You have granted to us by Your Spirit to believe and be filled with Your Spirit. rejoice in the process demonstrated here and in growth and wisdom. We rejoice in your victory over all of your enemies, especially over the demons of hell and all the filth that they bring into this world. And we rejoice to be yours, to be bound up in Christ and to be brought into your church. Oh, we thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.